I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. So I've always been fascinated by things like epiphytes. I just find it amazing that plants can survive completely in the air without any roots in the soil. That's Christopher Young, a garden manager at RHS Garden Wisley. Right here we have what we call like a vander hybrid. So obviously the flower is really spectacular. You've got this lovely kind of purple and speckling to it. But I just find the structure of the roots even more fascinating. So you can kind of see here, they're starting to go a bit white. So that's when they're starting to become a little bit more dehydrated. They go white. When you water them, they turn this lovely green color. I just, I just, yeah, I just find them really fascinating. We're standing in Wisley's brand new orchid house, which is chock full of plants from the RHS's vast orchid collection. There are epiphytic orchids, as Christopher mentioned, with long tendril-like aerial roots, fan-favourite cymbidiums, sometimes called boat orchids, with intricately variegated petals, rare species like Lelia gouldiana, a dashing pink plant that's now extinct in the wild. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. But it's always been my dream to actually have a dedicated space. So actually now be here, standing in it, enjoying it, it's yeah, dream come true. With the grand opening of the Orchid House this past month and the publication of the Orchid Review, our annual Orchid Yearbook, within reach, we thought it was about time for another Orchid special. So stay tuned as we take stock of this strange, beautiful and absolutely massive plant family. We're starting off with a name familiar to any specialist orchid breeders out there, Julian Shaw. Julian heads the International Orchid Register and is here to walk us through why he sees so many new hybrids each month. Afterwards, London grower Reshma Lobo will make the case for the oft-overlooked jewel orchids. Before we venture to America to learn all about the cattleyas named for first ladies. And finally, we're ending just outside Birmingham, in the home of Kevin Wigley. Kevin is the epitome of the very keen amateur. He sacrificed an entire room in his house to grow hundreds of different orchids and give them the conditions they need to thrive. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Guy Barter. Let's get right to it and turn it over to orchid connoisseur Julian Shaw. Julian's here to give us a bit of an overview of what makes orchids so strange and yet so popular. I work for the Royal Horticultural Society as Senior Registrar for Orchid Hybrids. That means we try and regulate the names applied to cultivated hybrids globally. 
they come into our office, people apply to register new hybrid names at the rate of usually between two and four hundred a month, which keeps us busy. So there's three of us working part time to cover that pretty much 24 seven. The orchid family itself is of global distribution except the polar regions. There's about 26,000 species known and several hundred are usually found in the wild every year. They also form natural hybrids by themselves without a plant breeder's help. Just to give some perspective, the daisy family is the nearest rival with 25,000 species, only about 1,000 between them. But orchids are very unusual in that most species will hybridise with each other. There are sort of a number of very large subgroups within the family and within the subgroups it's pretty much a free-for-all when it comes to potential for breeding. Which means that the number of crosses between 25,000 species is pretty well infinite. We're getting into the millions. So orchid hybridisation got going in the 1850s. The first list was published in the Gardener's Chronicle in 1871. There were about 20-odd hybrids known by that time. The Orchid Review magazine started to be published in 1893, which is a sign that orchid growing was reaching a wide audience. And in 1906, a man called Frederick Sander started producing a careful list of orchid hybrids because they were coming thick and fast and he thought unless we get a catalogue that we keep up to date it'll be total chaos because it's easy for people to make the same hybrid give it a different name and that immediately introduces confusion because in those days no internet people had to rely on the post so in 1906 Sander publishes his first edition of his list of orchid hybrids and the Sanders dynasty the the family kept the nursery going it was based at St Albans not just north of London so it took enormous effort doesn't it and commitment for a family to maintain that recording generation after generation from the 1800s right up to very recently in fact 1960 when the economics really of producing the list made David Sander decide to see if he could get the Royal Horticultural Society to take it on. Well, we get a mixture of keen amateurs who have their own breeding programme, really keen amateurs, have their own sterile laboratory that they set up in the bathroom or the kitchen or something, all the way to the large commercial nurseries that have serious breeding programmes and turn out literally several million plants a year. And, and that's why you know, you go into supermarkets and department stores and there's trays of orchids everywhere. And it's become a really common thing, hasn't it? I mean, when I was young, very rare to see an orchid in a house plant or for sale in a nursery, but everybody had a rubber plant. You were Ficus elastica variety, Decora, from Rochford's house plants. That was the in thing. Now you hardly see rubber plants, do you? You see orchids everywhere. I think the only thing that outsells them is Ponisettias at Christmas time. They have this mystique, don't they? This sort of special air. Oh, it's an orchid. And everybody goes, ooh, don't they? And it's been like that ever since Victorian times. These spectacular, great big cattleyas that ladies used to wear. Because, of course, to begin with, they were very expensive. They had to be imported. They'd be auctioned in London. People would pay sometimes hundreds of guineas for a plant. And so it was only the, the wealthy that could afford to cultivate them to any great extent. 
so orchids have always had this exotic, mysterious air. And it was one of the things that once somebody had made a fortune, they often did that, assembled an orchid collection. And it was a while, wasn't it, before orchids became common enough, the cultivation techniques were understood, they could be mass produced so that ordinary people could take them and grow them on their windowsill. Orchids are interesting for all sorts of reasons. One reason is the pollination mechanisms. There's things like the hammer orchid, you know, some of the flowers have moving parts. Others produce chemicals that intoxicate an insect or mimic, you know, pheromones, so the insect tries to mate with the flower. There's all sorts of systems employed, some are mimicking other plants, so there's deceptive attraction. So the whole pollination system, I think it was the first, Darwin was one of the first people to write a book about it, wasn't he? The various contrivances by which orchids are pollinated. And a lot of the orchids that he studied for that came from collections in London that were around about quite wealthy people. So they've always attracted attention of, of scientists and naturalists and people who like plants. But then every group of plants has its followers, doesn't it? And for some reason it appeals to them. And, but I, I'm just as equally attracted to other plants as orchids, so I'm happy to study anything. Thanks, Julian. If you'd like to learn more about the mind-boggling number of orchids out there, do check out the International Orchid Register. We've included a link to the database in our show notes. Orchids are the most fascinating flowers, and the ecology and the biology of them is absolutely entrancing. But there's others that are less conspicuous, less dramatic, so we'll go on to those next. Varesh Malobo, the owner of Ugly Plantling Nursery in London, the sometimes kaleidoscopic leaves of these plants deserve a second look. Today she's here to tell us about jewel orchids, which are prized not for their blooms, but for their foliage. I think quite often people think of jewel orchids as this one specific species called Ludicea discolor, which has been around since probably the 70s or the 80s through garden centres and through other growers. So people associate jewel orchids with just that one species. But actually, jewel orchids is a whole segment of very special orchids, specific uh, species, genera that are terrestrial. They grow in tropical and subtropical regions of the world predominantly. They grow on the ground through leaf litter and moss and have evolved in such a way to have just absolutely glorious, glorious leaves. So Ludicia discolor, for instance, dark leaves and veins that almost look like a pinstripe suit. But then you've got Macrotis patola, that is absolutely like lightning running through the leaves. And then you've got Anectochylus, dark, dark, you know, almost black leaves with veins that look like fiery embers running through them. So it really just depends on the specific cultivar or the species you're talking about. But the thing that's really common to them all, though, I mean, just the right light, they are all sparkly and shiny. I mean, it's indescribable. You'll think, what, did someone, you know, put glitter over it or something? Because that's how beautiful they actually are in real life. And, you know, when I say this to people, the common question I then get is, oh, do they flower? Of course they do flower. I mean, it's a plant. Of course they flower. But the difference is that these orchids make beautiful but really small flowers. 
They tend to be white or off-white. They're very intricate, just as you would expect an orchid flower to be, but they're just so small, maybe a centimeter, centimeter and a half at best. So they're really too tiny to really admire and appreciate, which is kind of the reason why you would actually grow them all year round to appreciate and admire the foliage rather than the flowers themselves. So my journey into orchids and jewel orchids in general really is, well, I've always liked the unusual stuff, stuff that is not so common. And many, many years ago when I came across my first Lodicea discolor, I thought, oh, that's very unusual, started looking into it more. And over time I realized that, oh, actually, it's pretty niche, or at least it was back then. There were very few people, very few hobbyists who really were growing jewel orchids in the UK. And then at some point I realized that, oh, actually, you know, I want to make this available to many, many more people. So I started looking into how do I grow them, how do I grow them quickly, and that's that's how the journey began way back. I think this is a topic that probably does not get as much attention as it should, and that is poaching. Picking orchids from the wild when they're supposed to be protected. Now, orchids everywhere are protected species, which is why you've got uh, rules and regulations around orchids. What's been happening throughout history, and you'd be surprised that it happens even to this day, and not just in the case of jewel orchids, but also in the case of other rare species of orchids, other rare species of plants, even succulents, where you've got these so-called plant hunters who steal them from the wild in the natural habitat so that they can sell it to the highest bidder. Tissue culture, in my experience, is one way you remove the pressure on wild collections of orchids because these pretty things, you're making them available at scale to people who would like to try growing these at home. So they don't have to rely on illegally collected things that they find maybe online or through some spurious WhatsApp groups and so on and so forth. So tissue culture then is in bare bones. It's not too dissimilar to chop and prop, except in a year of chopping and propping, you might get four plants out of the one plant you started with. Whereas with tissue culture, you probably will get 200 or depending on the scale, maybe even 2000 plants. How did I get started into tissue culture and jewel orchids? I just basically Googled it. I actually started out uh, in my old flat. I kind of started out doing all of this at the kitchen table and really just using things like my pressure cooker or the oven to sterilize things and create a makeshift shelf with lighting and things like that, sterilize all of this stuff to teach myself and experiment with tissue culture. So that's kind of how I started, but it's really not that hard if you put in a bit of effort, you know. It, it can be a fun experiment. If you're interested in growing jewel orchids at home and you are a total beginner to this, I'd suggest go with a thinner stemmed species such as an Ectochylus, because an Ectochylus are very resilient plants. Yes, they need high humidity, but as long as you give them good, decent 70% or so humidity, you throw anything at them and they will cope with it. So in terms of just getting into it, I'd suggest 
anectochylus is probably the easiest, in my opinion. Of course, most people will say, oh, you know, Lodicea is the beginner orchid. I have lost count of the number of Lodiceas that have died in my care. I have lost count. You know, they're so fussy. Stem rot, even when everything was fine and going swimmingly one day, and the next day you see stem rot, there's something else going on. There's always something going on with that, at least. So I find anectochylus, if you're a total beginner, go for any species of anectochylus. I think that'd be great. The leaves tend to be darker. And they could be so dark as to look almost black, but also dark green, dark burgundy, chocolate, that kind of stuff. And in terms of veins, imagine you've taken this sparkly pen and just gone sketching all over the dark canvas. If you have some experience with jewel orchids already, then I would say, yes, try your hand at Ludicia, try your hand at Dosinia marmorata or Macodes petola or Macodes sanderiana. Those are all slightly thicker stemmed species. They're a bit more sensitive to watering routines and too much water, too little water kind of a situation. But if you've already gotten into the rhythm of how to care for jewel orchids in general, I think you'll be just fine with that. I think as humans, we always have a little bit of the fear of the unknown, right? You have never done something before. You want to try to do that for the first time. There's going to be a little bit of apprehensiveness to that, a little bit of anxiety, and that's totally normal. Give it a try. See if it works. If it doesn't work for you, that's fine. At the end of the day, I think there is no reason to be daunted by jewel orchids. What's riding on it? Thanks to Reshma. We've included the link to Ugly Plantling in our show notes for those keen to grow their own rare and ethically produced jewel orchids. However, if you're still not convinced about orchids that lack show-stopping flowers, fear not. Our next feature is for you. We're turning away from the unusual and understated to one of the most stereotypically flamboyant genera, Cattleya. Art Chadwick, who runs Chadwick & Sons in the United States, breeds the Cattleyas named for American First Ladies. And we caught up with him last week to get a behind-the-scenes look at exactly how he does it. Cattleyas are the queen of the orchid family. They're the classic corsage flowers that were popular in the United States from the 1920s to the 1960s. If you look at any old-time pictures, everybody is wearing an orchid one, two, three, or four blooms on their lapel, maybe it's in their hair, and it's always a Cattleya orchid that has the big frilly lip and it's the most glamorous of all orchids. Other orchids are popular currently, the potted plants, ones you grow in your house. You even see them in grocery stores, that's how popular they are. But the creme de la creme of the orchid world is still the Cattleya, and you see them in botanical gardens, Q has tons, and. You know, any major botanical garden around the country, around the world, Longwood Gardens, the U.S. Botanical Garden, they're loaded with the Cattleya orchids because that's what the public identifies as an orchid. And for the first ladies, the very first first lady in the United States to have her own orchid was in 1914, Mrs. Woodrow Wilson. And since then, every first lady since then has had one. That's 19 consecutive first ladies in the United States. I was at my father's house in the 1980s, just reading old orchid magazines. 
And here's Mamie Eisenhower with her namesake, Catlia. Here's Bess Truman. Here's Pat Nixon with her. And I'm like, Dad, what, what is it with these first ladies and their Catlias? He said, oh, yes, that was a big tradition back then. And, you know, that, that was the glory days of the Catlias. But they don't really do that anymore. I said, what do you mean they don't do that anymore? Well, the tradition has sort of fallen by the wayside now that corsages aren't in fashion. So I said, Dad, you know, we should pick up this tradition and start it again because there's this long history. He said, oh, nonsense. You don't want to get involved with politics. That's the worst thing to mix with your business. I said, Dad, this has nothing to do with politics. This is a legacy. It doesn't matter what political party you're in. Everybody gets a Catlia orchid. I think we should continue this. So against his wishes, I started doing it. And it caught on immediately. Well, let's see, we had Barbara Bush in the 80s, and we had Hillary Clinton in the 90s, Laura Bush, Michelle Obama, Melania Trump, Jill Biden. We've done six in a row. And so we're sort of the go-to people for the First Lady hybrids. And now the White House calls us. It's a riot when you get a call from the White House and, and they say, so what's this orchid thing all about? What do we need to do to be part of this? It's so time consuming, you can't believe it. It takes seven years to raise a hybrid from seed until you see the first flower. And it could be awful when it blooms because it's just genetics and you throw them all away and start again. So you always have to have maybe 15 or 20 hybrids in the works. And as they bloom, you say, oh, this is good. This is not so good. This is spectacular. Let's set this aside for a possible White House person down the road. I mean, they're all great. They all have stories to tell. Some are more dramatic than others. Hillary Clinton's is just the most stunning, white with a peachy purple throat. Jill Biden's is an electric yellowy green flower. Laura Bush has a starburst pattern in the petals, purple tips and on the sepals and petals. They all have their own story and I think everybody likes them. That was Art Chadwick. We've included a link to Chadwick and Sons in our show notes if you'd like to learn more about his work. And now, finally, let's head to the home of Kevin Wigley, a self-described backroom boy. Kevin's here to explain how he converted a spare room into an orchid sanctuary and let us in on all the trials and tribulations that he encountered along the way. I have been growing orchids for... 30 years. I don't like to admit I'm quite as old as I am, but 30 years is how long I've been doing this for. The current setup has been developing for the last 13 years. And yes, it started with a phalaenopsis that was bought for me by my father, which obviously stood a snowball in hell's chance of surviving, and it didn't. <laughs> But it was the spark, and it's been well downhill ever since, really. <laughs> There's probably more orchids now than there has been for quite a long time. The current count is approximately 350 plants. So that takes up quite a lot of my time, as you can imagine. In the absence of anything better to call it, I call the room the orchid room. Well, basically, you 
walk through the door and there are plants on either side of you and in front of you. There are grow lights hanging from the ceiling, from the joists, providing light, obviously, and a little bit of heat. And I have grow bag trays on the benching, which keeps water off the wooden surfaces and enables me to mass water the plants. There's a fan going all the time the lights are on for air movement. There is a window, but I've actually drawn a blind down because I had the police round one time thinking I was growing <laughs> illicit substances, which was amusing. The humidity generally hovers around 60%. I suppose it's a bit like walking outside on a humid day. You can almost smell the petrichor in the air and you can feel the, the humidity on your skin. The temperature when I looked this morning was around 20 Celsius, but that can go up to in excess of 30 on a hot day. Although generally it's quite a buoyant atmosphere in there, which is really what you want when you're growing orchids. If you can balance the humidity and the temperature, then that works quite well at creating the right sort of atmosphere to grow not just orchids, but quite a lot of other houseplants as well. Although I do keep that room just for orchids. So I highlighted earlier about the growing in grow bag trays. So the idea is that rather than picking each plant up, taking it to the sink and watering it, I can just put water in the grow bag tray, the plants will take up what they need, and then they won't get watered again until they've dried out. That's, that's basically how it works. So that's very much a time-saving device on my part. Perceived or received wisdom is that you shouldn't let orchids stand in water. That's true to an extent, but as with all things, it's a lot more nuanced than that. And once orchids are growing actively, and if the atmosphere is buoyant, so the temperature and the humidity are in balance with each other, you can provide a surprising amount of water to orchids without it being a problem. And in fact, some of them actively demand it. I grow quite a lot of, as I said, bulbophyllums and also a genus called Cylogeny, which are very, very greedy plants. Bulbophyllums demand for their pots to be stood in a centimetre or two of water. And the same really goes for the Cylogenies. So it wasn't that big a jump to just put them all in a grow bag tray, put water in it and let them get on with it. It can be a bit of a mistake to try to generalise on orchid culture because you really have to know your conditions, if that makes sense. But for me, my methods work and they, they work very well. I won't lie, I've killed my fair share of orchids any orchid grower who tells you otherwise is telling you fibs, for definite. Because we have to make mistakes in order to learn. Well, I think you always have to grow, firstly, what you like, but also what does well for you. 
Now, <laughs> a lot of people, they grow Phalaenopsis as houseplants. Well, I've never actually succeeded with Phalaenopsis. I don't find them very easy at all, which is somewhat surprising that I've got a warm grow room with <laughs> practically perfect conditions for them, but I don't grow them. I've got one, and the only reason I've got that is was because it belongs to my grandmother, so it's an heirloom. But I've really landed on the sort of orchids that I suppose they're a bit more botanical, you might say. The Sologenes, there's 75 of those. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's also the Bulbophyllums of the um, Amazing Scents. There's 80 of those. And then, yes, there's Dendrobiums. There are a few Cattleyas, but I'll grow those in baskets so that they don't ever stand in water. But yes, so I have to, first of all, like them. If I don't like a plant, well, why would you grow it, really? But also, you have to be very ruthless, I suppose would be the word I'd use. If a plant isn't doing well, move it on, because life's too short for mollycoddling plants that just don't want to do well for you. I think orchids are a special family of plants because... The most weird and wacky and wonderful flowers probably occur in the orchid family. And even among my own collection, there are plants that you would not think belong to the same family of plants, and yet somehow they do. Also, probably because orchids aren't food, with a couple of exceptions, obviously, vanilla is an orchid and that's grown as a crop, but they have only decorative value. T to me, they are the pinnacle of horticulture, but I would say that I'm biased. But I think that's the appeal. I think it's the, that delicateness, that tenacity, and the beauty, the diversity. Just such, such a wonderful family of plants. And considering that orchids make up 8% of the species on Earth, they're also seen as rare. There's a rarity value to them. So I think that's probably what does it for me. That's why I love them. Kevin is writing an article on the varieties he grows at home for the 2023 issue of The Orchid Review. The story is a must-read. The Orchid Review, the RHS's magazine delving into all things orchids, has been in continuous publication for 130 years. It's historic, scientific and story-driven. And its first issue as an annual yearbook is coming out this autumn. We've included a link to the Orchid Review in the show notes, where you can find out how to order your copy. Well, that's about it for today. Before you go... I wanted to share a few of the other RHS resources on orchids if you're keen for more information. The Orchid Review has a free electronic newsletter if you'd like regular orchid updates. The Orchid Committee hosts meetings across the country and assesses over 200 orchids for award each year. Each winning orchid is then painted by a botanical artist and these paintings are held in the RHS's own collection. You can follow the committee on Twitter. And finally, the new Orchid House at Wisley will be changing out their displays throughout the seasons, so there will always be new and exciting plants to explore. That's all for now. So from me, Guy Barter, goodbye and thanks for listening.
I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.